On this episode of the Media Law Podcast, Gavin Phillipson joins us to talk about the case of Bloomberg and ZXC. I get accused of being a formalist, and Paul tries to deal with a wasp. Hello, and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. On the 16th of February 2022, the Supreme Court handed down its unanimous judgment in the case of Bloomberg and ZXC. The case has been widely talked of in media law circles as confirming the existence of a privacy right to pre-charge anonymity for criminal suspects. It is clearly a case of considerable interest not least because it is only the fourth case brought in the cause of action known as misuse of private information to have reached our highest court, the others being Campbell, OBG and Allen, which was the final edition of the Douglas and Hello magazine litigation, and the now infamous celebrity threesome case of PJS. Joining me to talk about the meaning and significance of the Bloomberg decision are my usual co-host Paul Rag. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom and Professor Gavin Philipson of the University of Bristol. Hi, Gavin. Hi, Tom and Paul. Nice to have you on. Um, So I'm going to start, listeners, um, by outlining the basic facts of the Bloomberg case, just so that everyone can be reasonably familiar uh, with it. Um, The Bloomberg decision is the final appeal of a case that went through both the High Court and the Court of Appeal at each stage, the original claimant, an anonymous individual represented by the characters ZXC in the litigation, has been successful. So Bloomberg has lost each and every round of this litigation. And what happened was this. A journalist at Bloomberg, which is a major uh, news and media corporation, obtained in circumstances that are not entirely clear, but which suggest a leak from within a UK law enforcement body, a letter of request that made reference to ZXC. Now, a letter of request is a document sent internationally from one state's law enforcement body to another's, asking for assistance. It is always a highly confidential document, since it refers to evidence in ongoing criminal investigation. The letter of request obtained in this case included a UK law enforcement body's conclusions about the evidence it had thus far obtained in an investigation. Bloomberg, having gotten hold of the letter, published an article based on its contents. These contents connected ZXC to a number of alleged offences, including fraud. At the time of publication, ZXC had not been charged with any offence. ZXC took exception to being identified in this uh, article in this manner and brought a claim for misuse of private information initially in the High Court and, as I said, succeeded there. It's noteworthy that the claim was only ever pleaded in misuse of private information. Now, our discussion today is going to touch on uh, three distinct issues to do with the case, and we will uh, may play around a little bit with that, and we'll have a fairly free-form discussion. 
uh, involving those. But the starting point um, is a question uh, of whether the information in this case, the contents of this letter of request sent by one law enforcement body in this country to a law enforcement body in another country, constitute private information. Gavin. Yes. What are your views? Yes. I mean, when I, it's an interesting point because when I initially kind of heard about the case and started thinking and talking about it with people, I was a bit skeptical that this fell within the scope of private life for the, for the reasons that kind of, you know, Bloomberg argued that it, it was concerned with the business activities. Um, it was, it was, there was a strong element of confidentiality as you've just outlined and the only real kind of link with with the individual with the effect the damaging effect on the individual was was kind of to their reputation so i kind of thought well this is really kind of either a sort of confidentiality case or a reputation case but i don't really see what it's got to do with privacy um that was so that was my kind of instinctive response which is kind of you know what bloomberg argued and and what nicole morham who was relied on uh, quite heavily by by Bloomberg in their in their arguments also argued, but it turns out when you actually go back and examine what privacy is thought to mean, that there's no reason why they shouldn't fall within it, because t- for it to be revealed, will have a major impact on your personal life, on your private life, um, in terms of the reputational damage that you will suffer and the knock on effects that, that will mean for for your own life, for for you know friendships for business relationships which we know fall within the scope of article 8 um and for you know your feelings of personal integrity dignity distress humiliation and so on and the sickery case um which we open our general media law article by sort of describing because it's such a wonderful illustration of kind of the enormously damaging impact this can have on someone's just you know everyday life multiple aspects of their life i think illustrates the point well so it's it's an unusual form of private information. It's not the kind of instinctive kind, um, sexual life, you know, health, et cetera, et cetera. But I think when you look at it in terms of the impact, both both in terms of the practical impact on someone's life and on theoretical accounts of privacy, including Nicole Morham's own, it, it does fall within it, albeit a sort of particular a particular distinctive category that's not not the instinctive category i'd agree it's not the instinctive category but i think looked at analytically it is rightly treated as a privacy case albeit bolstered by the bolstered by the confidentiality concerns and i think it's fine for confidentiality to come in and play a play a play a role within privacy cases because you can't draw a hard a hard bright line between between the two um so i think this is I mean, what you've touched on there, Gavin, is, is you know, the, the other two issues that we, we have to discuss, which is what role, if any, does confidence play in a case of this sort? And what is the relationship between a privacy claim and a defamation claim in terms of the reputational aspects of the case? And perhaps we can come to those shortly. Um, but, Paul, I wonder if I could get your views. As, first of all, you know, le- leaving aside the confidence and uh, reputational points, whether an understanding of what privacy encompasses um, a, makes this a privacy case, at least plausibly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so Gavin uh, referred quickly there to a, to a, an article that he and Robert Craig have just had published in Journal of Media Law, which I really encourage all of our listeners to to read. 
um, in which they uh, systematically um, deconstruct these issues uh, through Nicole Morham's own work. I mean, uh, Nicole is the who we've had on the podcast before. Is I think our leading privacy scholar, uh, second only to to Gavin. <laughs> Not sure about that. Um, and so, um, and and she has written about these issues uh, extensively. Has has clearly thought them through. And and uh, the advantage that I think uh, Nicole has, even over Gavin, and and us, of course. Uh, is that she's written about privacy law not only from the beginning, as Gavin has, but but also has written about this uh, doctrinally. She's now one of the lead editors on the the leading practitioner text on privacy, and um, but also theoretically, you know, her pieces are theoretically informed. Now, um, and so what's what's brilliant about the the work that I think uh, Robert and Gavin have done is just how they go through the argument and think about how all these issues stack together. Not it's not it's not an attack on on Nicole's work, but actually using Nicole's work to ask what remain deeply problematic issues within the law itself that are still unresolved. And the key question is, of course, the fundamental one. We keep talking about misuse of private information. We talk about privacy. What's privacy? Now, that is a fundamental question that re- remarkably has still not to be has still not yet been answered in anything other than uh, intuitive or pre legal terms. I mean, if you go all the way back to Campbell and you think about what um, the House of Lords thought privacy was in Campbell, they didn't know. They don't say. They don't say what privacy is. Um, Baroness Hale uh, thought, well, privacy is is that which is essentially private. Uh, Lord Hope said, well, privacy is that which is obviously private. And um, once you start to ask the question, okay, well, what's essentially private? What's obviously private? They they don't really know. So um, we still operate on this kind of pre-legal uh, intuition of what counts as private. And um, although you've told me not to do this, Tom, I'm going to do it anyway. Part of the reason why, of course, that the courts didn't have to grapple with the issue of what was private in Campbell was because um, they could rely on the law as it existed previously, which is breach of confidence, and conclude that, well, actually, this is private because it's confidential. And so Campbell got us off on the wrong foot, really, because although if we skip all the way forward to PJS, we see the courts, the Supreme Court say, well, of course, privacy is different to confidentiality. It's not different in terms of the meaning of what is private and what is confidential. It's different in terms of how far privacy law might protect information that has entered the public domain. And yet what's clear throughout the the case law is that we understand privacy as no more than an antonym to public. And we understand private as a synonym to confidentiality or secrecy. So when Gavin and Robert talk about the literature, they talk about well, what the scholars think privacy means. They don't get any further forward and they can't get any further forward than, well, it means in access. It means things that are hidden from view, things that we want to be hidden from view because they either cause us pain or they cause us uh, difficulty. 
Now, that is the position that I think the literature is in, um, and I think it's the position that the law is in, but I don't think that's adequate, and I think ZXC is an excellent example of why it's inadequate, because when we talk about the information at stake in ZXC, as Gavin's already said, we can call it confidential just as easily as we can call it private. I mean, I'd, I'd, I would try and make a distinction. So confidentiality is both broader and narrower than, than confidence. So it's broader in that it just means, if you look, if you go back to the kind of pre-human rights act confidence cases, it's just facts that are not generally known. That's the only definition. That's the definition used for confidential information. So that can include a huge array of things, including government secrets, commercial secrets, trade secrets, all, all the rest of it. Um, so in that sense, personal private information is narrower than that because it has to pertain to a particular individual. So government secrets, I think we could comfortably say, don't fall within the category of, of privacy. Um, but it's also narrower in the in its traditional form. It, it only arose within the second category was that there had to be an existing confidential relationship. So that made it narrower than, than, than privacy. I agree with Paul that, that Campbell kind of blurred things, which I think was just part of the judge's you know, letting off smoke to pretend that they weren't being as radical as they were, because they kept saying this falls within, you know, the old and the new law, which it did to an extent, but didn't in relation to the photographs. So yes, the leak, the leak from, and we quote, we, we quote Baroness Hale in, in Campbell, the, the leak of information from inside Narcotics Anonymous was both confidential and private. That information was both confidential and private, it's showing the kind of overlap. But the photographs taken in the street, as people pointed out at the time, including Jonathan Morgan, can't comfortably be called confidential. Or at least certainly the, the idea was that actually stuff going on in the public street that anyone could see was a kind of paradig paradigmatic example of stuff that wasn't confidential. So they don't they don't emphasize that point sufficiently enough, but it is there in the judgment that clearly they were. That was the major advance the law made at that point in covering that material. Just to say that, actually, I mean, I remember Jonathan Morgan's piece very well, and I, I disagree with it, on, on the basis that this wasn't, that the wrong that was done in relation to the photograph wasn't the taking of a photograph. The, the wrong that was done was the explanation of the photograph, to say, here is Naomi Campbell with her other attendees at Narcotics Anonymous, outside Narcotics Anonymous. This is where they go. This is the treatment that she has. If the Daily Mail had just published a photograph with of Naomi Campbell with her mates or or, uh, her, or a group of people, and published it without context, that that wouldn't be a uh, that wouldn't have been actionable, as Baroness Hale said. That would be popping out for a pint of milk. Yeah, it was the context of it. It was the explanation, and the explanation is confidential. Of course, it would subsequently have become actionable. Um, because only a few months after we have the Campbell decision, the European Court of Human Rights hands down its decision in von Hanover, and as Gavin quite aptly said at the time, moved the goalposts in terms yes. of private information. As far as the uh, Strasbourg Court was concerned, it was entirely possible to have a right to privacy in public spaces, even over uh, perfectly anodyne, mundane, everyday activities. Yeah. Um, so we, we then find ourselves in a position where a, a, a kind of an already inadequate understanding of privacy is challenged by a superior court internationally. Um, 
and we're given not a definition of privacy by the Strasbourg court, that would be too helpful, um, <laughs> but um, a, a, an illustrative case, an illustrative case which, of course, then over subsequent von Hanover cases is somewhat watered down um, as, as to where the line is to be drawn. Um, but I'm interested in this, in this definitional problem that we have with mm. privacy, because, of course, the more one tries to pin down a definition of what privacy is, the more one runs into difficulties that, uh, of course, the U.S. scholar Daniel Solov has uh, written about extensively, the, the issue of um, definitions being both over-inclusive and under-inclusive, and sometimes both at the same time. Um, and uh, Solov has proposed a taxonomic approach to understanding privacy in his book, Understanding Privacy, which comprises a taxonomy of privacy, um, uh, a book I know well and, 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 and have based some of my own work on, because I think he's right about this in a pragmatic sense. If we're going to get on and protect privacy interests, we, 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 we need to have a broader understanding yeah. of the sorts of things it can encompass rather than trying to pin down the one and only thing yes, it does. The Holy Grail, the Holy Grail we should stop looking for. There isn't a Holy Grail of, of one perfect definition that we, you know, that we can unite around and we'll solve all our problems. It's just not going to happen. Can I, can I ask a question though, um, Gavin, of, of, of mm. your, of your work that you, that you've done with, with Robert, because as you've already said, what, you thought this was a confidentiality case, but then the more you thought about it, the more you thought, well, no, this is privacy because of its consequences. Mm. Now, um, normally Tom is the formalist between the two of us, and he's always coming back to, no, follow, follow the case law, follow the case. He doesn't talk like this, but follow the case law, follow the case law. What? You've ever met. You do. You're, you're always formalist. That's what you do. It'd be ridiculous. Um, um, so uh, now the the test that we've got is a reasonable expectation of privacy. Mm. Yeah. So so there's there's two parts to it. The the thing has got to be private, but it, it our expectation of it has also got to be reasonable. Yeah. And um, so that me that of a set in a sense re removes the need for us to plumb the depths of what privacy is because of, the, of this reasonableness, which is a theory itself, but at least it gives us something. And um, but then. It's only once we've got past the threshold test that we can go on to the balancing task. And, and that is where the consequences of this thing come into play more so forcefully. Which balancing test? The balance with freedom of expression slash public interest? Or... Yeah. 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 So it, at that second stage, then we take into account things like, well, what, what is the impact here? What is the harm? Um, although we could have a discussion, I think, about whether harm does come into reasonable expectation, because it probably does in terms of seriousness. I think it does come in at both stages, yeah, actually, stage but, one and two. But. Yeah, but but what sort of struck me in what you were saying earlier, mm. I don't think you're doing this, but I want to ask you the question, mm. are you sort of trying to have the best of both worlds by actually using the consequences of disclosure of information to sort of underpin your understanding of what is private information? At using ZXC as the example or Sikri as the example? Mm. I mean, doctrinally, I could say it, it's, it's a well-known Murray factor, so the impact on the claimant is one of the factors clearly established by law as going to stage one, is there a reasonable expectation of privacy? Mm. Theoretically, I think that just tries to tell you, is this about the person, right? So this is going sort of deeper, and this was goes mm. to what you were kind of asking me before we went live about well, what about commercial information that someone has generated? 
why wouldn't that fall? You know, if you're going to be as expansive as, as, as using Nicole's own definition or the WA parent one, we quote facts about a person which most individuals in a given time do not want widely known about themselves. Mm. Um, why couldn't that include commercially valuable information that you want to exploit? And we saw, yeah. I mean, one of the Douglas cases, the, the third Douglas case, actually, that what when it went to the high court there was a back and forward in that case wasn't there about whether to regard the information about their the photographs of their wedding as a sort of personal private information or actually be which i think the courts kind of settled on in the end commercially valuable information which they wanted to be free to exploit Mm -hmm. because they owned it essentially yeah so that that's a nice case i think in illustrating the quandary that that the the courts in the same case, obviously it was a complicated case with several judgments, sort of went back and forward a bit on was this really private information when after all they'd invited, you know, another magazine to cover it and everything, or was it actually yeah. commercially sensitive information? So I think I think you've challenged me on a really good point. I'll have to think about that more. I mean I, I I'm sort of formulating tentatively an answer which I'm sure you could tear apart, that it's sort of that it is information that relates to the individual themselves and not to something they've made which perhaps you could distinguish. Uh, I mean, obviously, then what about diaries? That's something the individual has made. Um, mm. And we know those are covered from the Prince Charles Diaries case. So yeah. I think it's, good, it's a good point to press on, and it's something that will need some further thought, I think, because the, the WA parent slash Morham's own definition about unwanted access to the person, I mean, that may, you know, that may in itself answer it. So Morham talks about, and obviously we used her, her own definition kind of in a sense against her approach to to show why her own definition actually gave the result in ZXC that it was private information contrary to her argument on ZXC. Mm. Um, But if it's access to the individual, I think you could argue that that something commercially sensitive that they want to exploit that they've made, like an invention, is not access to them. It's access to a commercial creation of theirs. Whereas ZXC, it was access to and a sensitive fact, sensitive set of facts, them yeah. being under investigation about them that then directly affected their lives. And the other possible distinction you could draw is that what's the loss? So this is to answer your consequences point where I think yeah. it's helpful. So the loss did directly affect these claimants, the various claimants, including especially mm. Sikri, much much more so than ZXC, but somewhat ZXC, their own lives. Mm and their own relationships and their sense of dignity and so on. Whereas if you're commercial, you know, if someone takes confidential information for you that's commercially valuable, you could say the only loss to you is financial, perhaps, which yeah. you could distinguish from, 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 from impacts on your own kind of inherent sense of yourself or your personal integrity, yeah. maybe. But that's tentative because you've raised a really, really good point here. Well, so, well, it had to happen eventually. Um but I think part part of the reason why this this fascinates me is that perhaps I I um, sort of accept too readily the argument not an argument the finding that Michael Tuggenhat uh, made in in a case like Terry uh, and which we've seen resurrected in cases like YXB and TNO where the courts have taken. Uh, what you just said about personal information that leads to a loss um, and, and sort of flipped it on its head to deny privacy rights. So, you know, in both Terry and YXB, the court's view was really, well, news of this affair 
is only important to you because it's going to have an impact on your clean cut image that you're using to generate commercial interest to, to do adverts or, yeah. or whatever it might be. So you're not really interested in your family life. You're actually interested about how this impacts on your commercial uh, reputation. So, so if you read, and, and possibly you shouldn't read cases like Terry and Wyatt's be too closely, but if you do read them closely and you take that logic forward, it does seem to make this sharp distinction between these reputational interests and private life, which something like ZXC and I think Richard kind of says the opposite. Mm. I mean, I'd just say straightforwardly, Terry was wrongly decided. Um, I'm, I'm not familiar with the other with the other case, and it was an example of Tuggenhart's moralism that he just thinks, you know, ill ill conduct should be should should come out, and people should be punished for it, <laughs> um, which you get in a lot of his decisions. I think they should suffer public shaming, which Paul Dacre would obviously emphatically emphatically agree with. Um, but yes, I agree that was drawing distinction. But I mean, I could say, Dr. Arnley, that's only at first instance. There's lots of criticism of those yeah. judgments along with, you know, uh, the other footballer cases, you know, where there's these yeah. somewhat spurious public interest arguments were seen were seen as weighty by the judges. But I agree there's a tension there. But I would say, good, the tension's been resolved in the right direction. <laughs> well, now, the other question that I wanted to, to do on in terms of reputation, and I think some if we move on to reputation now um just thinking about um whether we, we we've sort of touched on and perhaps we haven't talked enough about whether mopey and, and breach of confidence is is becoming too uh, closely related so it's difficult to see one from separate one from the other but also the the line between privacy and defamation seems to be um, blurred as well and that was one of the strong criticisms that nicole made of cases mm. like zxc and also richard and this this whole idea of pre-charge anonymity now you respond to that by saying well reputation is part of article 8 so it's not a problem but is there a danger with that kind of argument though because reputation is part of article 8 because the european court of human rights says consistently that defamation as an action is an yeah. article 8 right yeah, so we don't just rest on that because then you could just respond and say, yeah, of course it is, and that's fine. We've got a separate yeah. tort, so there you go. We protect yeah. Article 8 rights in a number of different ways and, and reputational Article 8 stuff, we've got a tort for that. It's called defamation, so off you go and bring your claim in defamation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what which is what I would say. Yeah. Which is what I think Richard should have done. Well, Richard probably could have done because the BBC yeah. wouldn't have satisfied the chase-level meaning rules. I mean, that's where it gets very hard and technical and one of the hardest bits of the article we found to write was the interface with defamation, which was really, is really, really, really tricky. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, we got quite worried about aspects of awarding. So we were comfortable with, so Morham's objection, and this is where you get privacy, presumption of innocence and reputation all kind of colliding together, all, all the values kind of coming together in a, mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a concerning way. So she was worried about, well, hang on a minute, if you can, if you can bring a defamation, if you can bring essential, if you can protect your reputation against an essentially truthful allegation that you're being investigated by the cops, yeah. then aren't you just using that to cover up your own wrongdoing? So it's not it even relates to the privacy point. You're not really about, oh, this is private information. It's actually just shit. I don't want people to know about this <laughs> yeah. because I'm under investigation. And that means I may well be up to no good, as she puts it. Yeah. So that's why we bring in the presumption of innocence to say the judges can have regard to that as a guiding light to say the person 
should not be treated at this point as being probably guilty or definitely guilty. Rather, they yeah. should be rather they should benefit from the presumption of innocence, which the Supreme Court doesn't actually go with. Notably, the Supreme Court takes the judicial, the more cautious judicial line up to now of saying, "Oh, it all it's all about protecting the claimant from what the public from the public's own failure to apply the presumption." But the bit that the Supreme Court didn't go into that we did worry about, and, and although that was raised lots in argument, was this point about, okay, but suppose later on someone you've given damages to, like ZXC, is later convicted. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we suggested a number of a number of solutions to that problem, none of which the Supreme Court went into. I think they just thought, okay, well, you know, sufficient unto the day is the evil. Let, let's worry about that another time in classic sort of common law ways but i think there are ways of dealing with that so in some cases like with richard like with sickly the, the criminal proceedings will have already been dropped before the before the case the civil case the previous the, the, the civil case is heard so in which case there isn't any danger then of them being convicted really um if however if the criminal cases are still ongoing and this that actually interestingly in the hearing the judges, the barristers were made to go away by the Supreme Court and quickly over lunchtime do a classic bit of research on can we just stay the civil proceedings? And I think they came back and said that they could. Um, and we suggested that, that if actually there's a danger that we, we need to know, <laughs> is this person actually going to turn out to be guilty, then stay the privacy case mm -hmm. um, and, and wait and see what happens. But we think that would only arise in, in you know, relatively few instances and hasn't actually so far come up in the... There's yeah. an actual real problem in the cases so far, but it could be a problem. Yeah, and it, and well, it's a kind of moral problem that I think the public would sort of think about this person walking away with their damages, and later on, oh, actually they're guilty all along. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, surely there would be an answer to that as an equitable remedy, would there not? And would that not be an classic example of unjust enrichment? We, I mean, am I yeah. just getting my second year law school? and misremembering it hideously badly. Some, some Someone who does equity will listen to this and uh, tell me I'm completely and totally wrong. But oh, and, and even if the, the doctrine doesn't completely support it, then presumably there's a direction in which cautious remedies could be developed. And, get the money. Um, in, in essence, you get the, you get the money yeah. um, for now on the basis that you are, you know, innocent of whatever it is that you've been accused of, and if it turns out you're not, and it can revert to um, the, uh, the 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 original defendant. I mean, it must yeah. be a it's not beyond the realm of judicial imagination to do it. Yeah, we thought there's ways you could do it. You could even get an undertaking from the claimant that they will repay the damages if they can if they're later convicted, or pay it into an escrow account that they only get access to if they're you know or the proceedings are dropped. So I think there are practical ways around that. There was, but the Supreme Court carefully avoided all of that in its in its in its judgment. Well, I think I think in in, in their defence, I I would say that um, the, the practical point here is that if if you are getting an award of damages, it's because the private information was misused without legitimate uh, excuse, without legitimate justification. The, the legitimate justification being there's no public interest. A defense that you can run now that that was the case in zxc and we're not we're not really going to talk about um uh, public interest but there was no public interest at that time in saying this person is being investigated because it didn't it didn't serve a purpose hmm. even even bloomberg couldn't come up with a with, hmm. a with a reason why this information needed to be known now so if you're awarding damages on the basis of a misuse of private information tour, even in circumstances where the person goes on to be found guilty, 
is presumably because at that point in which you release the information, there was no conceivable public interest. So then to later say, oh, well, there is a public interest, because actually it turns out once they had done the investigation, he was guilty all along, is is sort of is sort of anachronistic, I think, because if you didn't know that at the time, you didn't have a defense for publishing the information. Right. But Paul, I think I think it I think it goes and I think that's kind of the line the Supreme Court took almost, which is why they didn't really see this as a problem. But I think if you sort of reason backwards, the reason you're awarded damages in the first place, or prima facie awarded damages subject to a public interest defense is that your reputation has been unfairly harmed because the rationale the Supreme Court uses and the lower courts all used was that the public will will think the worst of you for being under investigation. They won't fully apply the presumption of innocence. So therefore, there will be harm to your reputation, which I think the facts of the Sikri case amply bear out, um, and the Kuja case, which was a slightly different set of facts. Um, and we, we quoted an email from him that he sent Robert after Robert published his case note on it to say how badly his life had been damaged. He was he was someone who was accidentally mentioned kind of in open court. Yeah. He was someone uh, uh, who, who was never actually um, charged, um, but was at one point suspected of involvement with child abuse. Um, but anyway, so the reason why I think it does raise a problem if they're later convicted is the reason why they're given damages is because their private life has been affected through reputational harm, which is presumed to be unfair reputational harm, because at this point, they're still presumed innocent. If they're later found to be guilty, then it's not unfair reputational harm, because they never deserve that reputation. And I think that's why, if you unpack it, that's why there could be a concern with people later convicted. Yeah, you see, I don't like that. I don't like that. <laughs> that's, 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 taking, that's cherry picking. That's taking aspects of defamation law and just applying it back to... Um, well, privacy. is there a difference here between perhaps... I mean, we're using the term reputation and we seem to be using it as if it's readily applicable across both defamation and privacy cases in the same way. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure that it is. A, rep, a person's reputation from the perspective of defamation law has always been, in essence, a commodity. Yeah, It's a thing that gets damaged and then is useless in yeah. a, a, a quasi-commercial sense, really. Mm. Um, it's about you know your standing in society that you can trade on, whether financially yeah. or socially. But a person's reputation in a privacy context, I think, has to be construed more broadly. Because if we're saying that as the European Court of Human Rights has done, and I don't think it's just about saying, you know, Article 8 covers lots of different things, um, that privacy is about a person's dignity and autonomy, then uh, a person's reputation has an impact on the way that they view themselves, the way that they think others are viewing them. Whether those others actually view them that way or not impacts upon their own sense of self. So the reputation is, in a way, reflective. And in a way, it's actually doubly reflective. It's a person seeing themselves through the imagined eyes of others viewing them. Yeah, That's not the way that reputation is conceived of in defamation law. I think it can be conceptualized that way in privacy. Now, it would be really helpful if a court would sit down and spend several pages of detailed judgment explaining the rationale behind that. In the in you know in 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 the absence of that, which I suspect will continue indefinitely, um, it might be helpful for you know academic scholars such as ourselves to you know mm. to explore an issue like that in more detail. 
I think um, the closest you get to judges doing it is Sikri, where from memory that they, the court does try and draw a distinction between, as it were, the kind of the, the outward aspect of, of reputation that you've just described, which is which is how you actually are seen and the damage that can do to you. And, and as you described it, sort of reputation as commodity. And on the other hand, the kind of internal aspect of it, sometimes called the looking glass theory, that your your view of yourself is, it's your own sense of self-esteem, which is inevitably affected by how others see you. And that the privacy bit of it is concerned with the inner subjective sense of yourself and your own self-esteem and how that is damaged. Whereas reputation is concerned more with the external aspect and that in particular, I think Warby says in Sikri that you shouldn't get damages for the external damage to your reputation, as it were, in a privacy case, only for the internal <laughs> damage. So you end up with these slightly fine distinctions between where you can have damages for loss of dignity and humiliation and, and distress, but not for external harm. And that's mm. one way they've suggested, but the Supreme Court didn't really go into that clearly, I don't think, in its judgment. I wonder if that's actually become an easier distinction to draw since the coming into force of the 2013 Defamation Act, which I think one of the the key aspects of that legislation was in trying to concretize damage in defamation. So now that serious reputational harm has to be shown, for example, it becomes there's more of this exercise of trying to identify evidenced financial loss or reputational harm that is so clear that we can infer the level of severity from it and and hazard an educated judicial guess as to how much that might be worth. Whereas in privacy uh, cases, we've always had what I've thought was a very haphazard approach to the quantification of damages based on some vague estimation of how bad you you might be feeling. Uh, And we get wildly different awards in privacy cases um i mean the amounts of money that have been given out in the phone hacking litigation compared to the once record sixty thousand pounds given out in mosley and i think few would resile from the proposition that in a great many of these phone hacking cases the harm done to uh someone like max mosley um, in terms of the the damage to his privacy, um, the spreading of literally naked videos of him over the internet was more severe than feeling upset that somebody had listened to some a voicemail that somebody else had left you, presumably not featuring very much of your own private information. Um, and yet, damages two, three, four times the size of the Mosley Award um, appear in Galati. So I mean, I, that seems to me to be very um, haphazard. I, I, well, yeah, completely agree. Rereading the, the, the Campbell case very closely, um, as Paul might like to hear, um, it's notable how that how the, the, the Court of Appeal was quite blasé and said, well, insofar as Naomi Campbell kind of worried about the extra details, we think she was oversensitive in that respect. Mm-hmm. And the House of Lords all kind of trip over themselves to say how, you know, it's a much more kind of humane and very kind of sensitive judgment. And they mm-hmm. see, even the minority who've ruled against her, can quite see why she would be upset about the the, the the extra details of the fact that it was narcotics anonymous and all the rest. So that that's an example of, of very very different approaches to kind of exactly what you were saying, how bad this is for the claimant. But as you said, it, it's kind of all guesses in a way. And I think the approach now, as a result of Section One of the Defamation Act, yes, seems to be more systematic with claimants now facing a relatively high bar in proving 
or at least leading some evidence to show the damage to their reputation in concrete terms. Mm. Can we move on to talk about the confidence issues? Because we've, we, we, we've touched on this a little bit and we've, we, we've, we've noted some of the similarities historically between privacy and confidence and goodness knows there's enough confusion in the doctrine about it. Um, we, we can always explore. Um, but is this a case that could conceivably have been pleaded in a more traditional breach of confidence action? Because counsel in the case clearly thought that that was not the right way to go. This was pleaded only ever in misuse of private information. And I find myself looking at it and thinking, does not this not fit the the doctrinal framework of spy catcher type confidence we have here an obviously confidential document you know that meets exactly the sort of criteria that lord goff had in mind in spy catcher that finds its way into the hands of a journalist who then publishes the contents of the obviously confidential document without any regard for its mm. confidentiality um to the detriment of the subject of the information um so on its face this looked like spy catcher confidentiality for me which would have avoided all of these arguments mm. about whether this is really private does it overlap with defamation uh, where is the line to be drawn how do we quantify damages can we protect damages from a person who might subsequently turn out to have done the thing that they have been accused of doing and insist they didn't do even though it's not a defamation case and all this stuff that we've happily spent 40 minutes talking about could have been avoided with a confidence claim does this fit and if not why does it not fit i think the answer well so one answer is the uk law enforcement body clearly could have brought an action in confidence and that would have been a straightforward action in confidence they didn't want to for whatever reasons probably because they didn't want to give any further publicity to it um because they wish it had never been published but we don't know why they didn't but they could have done and i think that would have been a straightforward i think in relation to zxc bringing it the the doctrinal reason he didn't is this case axon is this case of axon and the, and the mod in 2016 which interestingly suggests that as far as confidentiality has concerned the law has reverted back to the, to pre that kind of spy catcher obiter to a more traditional notion of to whom is confidence owed only to the person who you're in a confidential relationship with, perhaps. Um, where the idea is from that from that case, which I think spooked the, was why Zedexy didn't argue it, which suggests that the only person who could have brought the, the action in confidence was was UK Lab, not not that was to who that was the person to whom the journalist owed the duty of confidence, not to Zedexy, which would suggest that the judges perceive confidentiality is now having shrunk back, which might be right, actually, as a matter of principle, to its pre-expansive uh, stage and, and, and now requiring the orthodox Coco and A and Clark kind of ingredients, mm. which would kind of make sense because the only reason it was stretched really was to protect privacy. And now we've got MPI, we don't need it to be stretched. So it can kind of spring back into its original shape. Now it's kind of, you know, stretched out like the pregnant belly, you know, and the, but it's given birth to privacy. So now it can kind of spring back, like, you know, it can get its figure back after having given birth to privacy and be good old fashioned rigorous confidence again. At least that's what I think this suggests, but it needs someone like maybe Tom Bennett to write an article about <laughs> what's the doctrine of confidence nowadays. <laughs> but that's what I would guess. It, it is definitely confusing. 
because it's it's been wholly unclear, as I have said on a few occasions, since the Campbell case, what the relationship is between the doctrine of confidence and the doctrine of misuse of private information. Mm. Lots of different words have been used to describe the emergence of misuse of private information. Um, and on some understandings, it's kind of grown out of breach of confidence. Um, uh, but then it's within three years of the Campbell decision. By the time you get OBG and Allen, the House of Lords is saying, well, actually, it's a separate cause of action. And, you know, one is equitable and one is tortious. And so these are actually separate, despite the fact that in Campbell, the same court with virtually the same panel was at pains to explain just how little they were changing the law. And so really, yes. it's just a confidence case. And Campbell was, of course, pleaded in breach of confidence, and there is yeah, a thing that says, you know, you can only deal with the case and the doctrine in which it is pleaded. Um, I, I wouldn't subscribe to that myself, but there'd be a line of thinking that that, 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 that that is the only way to deal with it. You know, is this a single a single entity that has gone through multiple Time Lord-style regeneration but essentially remains the same, uh, the, the same character? Or have we got a whole new cause of action that has appeared um, despite howls of denying protestation from virtually every part of the judiciary and um, uh, the press in the early 2000s and a whole bunch of academics. So, you know, we can't possibly have a brand new tort, uh, but actually we've ended up with it. Um, you know, is something that it, because if, if MPI grows out of breach of confidence, presumably MPI is equitable, um, but it's been, we've been told it's a tort. Um, if it, it man can understand it regenerating from an equitable doctrine into a tort, but if so, then that you know that that, that iteration of the doctor is gone. Right? We don't have Tom Baker anymore. Uh, so, and I think there are a lot of different variants. And quite rightly, this is the thing. You know, this this is why it should be an article, not you know, an hour's worth of podcast in this particular issue because it would go on forever. But there are lots of different variants of these models that you could have. Yeah. None of which, so far as I've seen and I've tried to play around with them, get you to a definitive answer. Um, it's all just a big mess. And, and and now the idea that actually what breach of confidence might do is spring back, not to where it was before Campbell, not even to where it was in the 1980s in Spycatcher, which was a, a, you know, a different model of confidence entirely and wasn't to do with privacy. It was you know, a state secret issue. Um, or, but spring back all the way to the 1960s, as if the 60s version of breach of confidence was, in some way, you know, the original and uh, you know the original and best, the real McCoy of confidentiality, which was itself a rather different formulation to 19th century versions of confidence. And there's a brilliant mm -hmm. book on it, by the way, um, by which um, oh, Megan, the Megan Richardson. Yes, the Megan Richardson book on breach of confidence, which is, is superb on the history of it. Um, yeah, I mean, that would just introduces a whole new model because is this what equitable actions can do? They stretch and stretch and stretch and they get pregnant and then they give birth to something that's a completely different yeah, and then they And then they spring back. It's like a cell dividing. You know, if you've seen those images of a cell dividing, it swells and swells and swells, and then the other one snaps off, and then the other, the original cell kind of snaps back into its original size. And I think well, it's an interesting biological metaphor, but have we ever observed this happening in any other part of equity or tort law? 
don't know. I mean, I think I think the blurring is inevitable when you get judges incrementally developing one an, uh, one action out of you know a new action out of the old, and you also get a lot of denial and obfuscation because the judges are always worried about separation of powers grounds and so on. And in this case, knowing that the press was going to hate it as well, of, of appearing to do anything new for the first time, as Sedley says. So the common law always has to sort of pretend and, and often sort of overlay its own creativity and kind of hide behind smoke screens about oh it's all the same really you know just it's this new language and stuff but i think later on it became clear pjs and galati and others were clear this is a new tort it's different well no absolutely well you you spoke about sickery in 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 sickery um warby makes the point doesn't he i think it was warby um he says at the beginning well well um uh privacy is um Crazy easy. Privacy is um, part of the confidentiality uh, genus, but breach of confidence and misuse of private information are separate and distinct wrongs. Uh, and then, very helpfully, having made that statement, he says, "But the but at at this trial, however, it's been common ground that it's unnecessary to examine their differences. So I'll just pretend I never said that. Um, <laughs> and I'm not and I'm not going to tell you what the differences are. Um, so so judges do seem to think of it." is being different but the, the frustration is that it doesn't seem to do different things when you drill down apart from some some formal points um one of the things that you 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 wanted to talk about though gavin i think it's related to this is the rhetoric that's deployed mm. in the judgment um in the bloomberg case um which seems to very much have an idea of the audience in mind. And the audience for this particular judgment is not just you know, everyday media law scholars like us, but a particularly troubled press. Yes, the press. We started off on this by, first of all, being a bit disappointed. We weren't, we weren't cited, given we had been quite heavily relied on by counsel for ZXC, which was nice, obviously. So then, like, control F. Where's our name? Oh, no, nothing. <laughs> but then we noted Morum's not cited either, and no academic is cited at all, not, not, you, you, not yourself or Paul either. So no academic citation. And I was just noted that it's very black letter. Well, there's two things I noticed, but one is that it's very, so they go exhaustively through every conceivable case that could be said to, you know, uh, underpin this one, including several that we hadn't, you know, that I hadn't come across before, which no doubt is a result of, you know, barrister's research. So that, that seemed to be, they were keen to kind of say, this is an ordinary black letter case. You know, we're not doing anything new. This has been here for a long time. Um, we're going to root it in the, in the case law. And the other one was going to a great deal of trouble to to show quite how broad and strong the consensus was in society, including in you know democratic bodies like the government and House of Commons committees and so on. Um, I see Paul is attending to his wasps again. Um, how strong the consensus was across the board, including the police, including the government, including Parliament, albeit not through legislation, and you know inquiries like Leveson. Everyone basically, I think, I think you know the hidden message was. Basically, everyone but the media, everyone but the press agrees on this. Um, obviously, the press are going to moan about it, but essentially, it's not just us. I think the key thing was this isn't us, just us, the judges. Insofar as we're, we're developing the law, there's a very strong line of authority, so they go exhaustively through all the law beforehand, you know, painstakingly, case after case after case. And then the, the very broad democratic and expert consensus, including from the police, the judges, and everyone else who's looked at it. 
and I think I think that part of it is defensive, is preemptive defense against the inevitable press reaction. And I almost wonder whether they didn't cite any academics because that makes it sound a bit theoretical and principled and airy-fairy, whereas they wanted to say, A, this is just dull black letter law, nothing to see here, guys. And B, insofar as, you know, this overall has been a change from 20 years ago, it's one that kind of everyone who's looked at this, including the government and parliament, you know, agrees is, is, is clearly a good thing. So to give it some sort of like democratic or societal imprimatur. And, and the one thing they didn't want it to look like was, was airy, fairy, principled judicial creativity. It's also noteworthy, I think, that this was a unanimous judgment. Mm. That there was, um, we didn't even have multiple concurring judgments. This no. was a single judgment written by two of the uh, Supreme Court justices and uh, agreed to by the other three on the panel. Um, and we've seen, and this is something else that I've, that I've written on, actually, and, and there's, there's, there's been a, an, an increase in the number of, uh, and the proportion of unitary judgments issued by the Supreme Court over the last, just over a decade, really since the Supreme Court replaced the House of Lords. Um, it's becoming much more common practice, and uh, often the importance of legal certainty, speaking with one voice, is cited in support of this practice. I think that there is a price to be paid for that in that complex matters are sometimes portrayed as if they were simple with easy and obvious Mm. uh, resolutions. I don't think that's particularly a problem in this case um, because I don't think that there are a wide range of plausible readings of the doctrine um, that could give rise to you know, a substantial amount of disagreement, um, which is being artificially covered up. I don't think that's the case at all. But I think there are cases in which that's happened. Mm. Um, uh, so I, I, th- I, th- I think it's not just about, uh, it, it may well not just be about presenting certainty for legal practitioners and the law's addressees. I think that there, there, there is a degree of presentation about this Mm. Um, maybe a degree what we we might call politicking uh, from judges who know full well that they you know are in the firing line yeah from from the government as well well the government as well as the press which which the the the, um the stuff on freedom of expression and privacy in the government's consultation paper on the human rights act is is very strange but very very marked and i'm sure the government i'm sure the supreme court judges are aware that this is an area of what they've done under the human rights act that is regarded with deep disfavor by the current government and may be used as one of the reasons for dismantling the human rights act completely indeed on that cheery note <laughs> although i don't i'm not sure it'll ever happen but yeah, to be slightly more cheery but i mean i will say just i suppose as a final point having it, i didn't mean that particularly sound I think the judgment from an academic perspective is slightly just slightly kind of disappointing because it didn't go into all the more jazzy, sexy kind of theoretical stuff we'd like to see them grappling with. But from the point of view of a unanimous judgment that's very clear, I think it's very helpful for the for the law and for legal certainty. So that has worked. Because we could have had, you know, one of those awful decisions with like two different concurring majorities that actually say different things and then a very strong dissent, uh, like in the like in the the, the black EBS. Well, yeah, well, PJS just had one dissent, didn't it? Just one dissent, I think, which was Toulson. Yeah. yeah. 
you do get cases in public law where you have horrendous things where you can't really work out what the hell the ratio is meant to be. So it's avoided all of that, and it was notable that it was unanimous. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you both very much for joining me today. It's been really nice to talk to you. And 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 you both and Paul. I hope the wasps get sorted. <laughs> we will. Uh, the next podcast is going to be on wasp wasp rights. I think we've agreed on that. Do wasps have rights? <laughs> we'll yes, try they to do. keep you updated, listener, uh, as to the state of play of the wasps in Paul's house. Um, my thanks to uh, Gavin and Paul for today's discussion. Uh, we'll be back before too long. So as ever. Keep an eye out. Until then, goodbye. Bye-bye.